So Stephen, as he has done, I found with other speakers, suggested to me a topic. He said, hey, why don't you think about preaching on there arose a generation that knew God. Well, I found Judges 2.10 that says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. But I couldn't find the verse that said there arose a generation that knew God. But it greatly intrigued me. And you see, if you're a minister, I don't think that there could be any greater desire than to give yourself to the work of God and have it result in a generation that knew God. I have the privilege of preaching weekly to an audience of approximately 3,000 young adults between the ages of 18 and 22. And I'm very burdened about seeing this generation truly knowing God. I'm, I'm not concerned, if you will, about gnosis, knowledge, knowing of God or knowing about God. There's a lot of that. I'm deeply concerned, if you will, about epignosis, a deep, personal, intimate, relational knowledge and understanding. You see, not a generation which knows of God or about God, but a generation that knows God. I was completing my doctoral studies. I wrote my dissertation on a somewhat simple topic. My title was simply this, Helping Gen Z Students at a Conservative Christian University Choose Church. You might sit and think, wow, that three pages, like. And you wish it was a topic nobody had to write on, right? What? You got students who are actually choosing a conservative Christian university? And you think you have to do something about helping them choose church? Absolutely. You see, it sounds simple. However, when the dynamics are considered, they're very complex. It required an understanding of generationalism, and in particular, Gen Z, it required an understanding of learning in order to understand choosing. It required then an understanding of the learning behaviors and styles of Gen Z in order to understand their process of internalization. It required an understanding of the learning styles of the age group that is most likely in the category of teacher for those who today would be the learners in order to understand how we should best bridge from one to the other. It necessitated an understanding of the importance of church and investigation of how this generation of learners and the current generation of teachers view it and value it. And I found there were needs in every one of those areas. The process of that study on Gen Z, I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to give yourself to that, but a couple of resources I would recommend after all of the Bibliography work that I did are probably the, the, the top ones are from a guy named David Kinneman. David is now the head of the Barna organization. He wrote one book, and that led then to writing another book, and it ultimately ended to the writing of a third book. The first book that he wrote was You Lost Me. And he did a demographic study of young people that are claiming to believers and being in church but somehow have become disenchanted. And doing all of that study and all that demographic study, he's discovered that there was another larger group, and it was a group that actually were not claiming to be believers, walking same similar steps. And so he wrote a second book about that audience, and it's entitled Unchristian. And then out of that, he wrote a third book, What is Going On? And he wrote a book that I would recommend to every one of you. It is called Faith 
for exiles, five ways for a new generation to follow Jesus in digital line. And his point in the book is this. We feel like so many of us who are raised and living in the church that we're in the promised land. And what we don't realize is because of our technology, our children are with us in Jerusalem, but they're living in Babylon. So I encourage you to read it because there's some things about this generation. They're the first generation, Gen Z, that is digitally native. They're digital natives. Freshman class that came to university this year was the first class when they were born that year was the very first time anybody ever Googled anything. And so they had been raised on Google. Well, I could walk you through a bunch of those markers. I won't take your time to do that. But one of the things that I want to emphasize to you is this, that while we have greater access to the Word of God, we actually have less of it. So think about where we're at. We literally have created our own icons and relics out of Scripture. We wear it on our T-shirts. We put it on our bumpers. We hang it on our walls. And yet, friends, we are living, if we are honest, in a pandemic of biblical illiteracy. And I believe there's a book in the Bible that addresses that, and in doing so, is actually a source of hope. That as we look at this daunting giant, if you will, of a generation that is not just different, but is rapidly changing. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to try and keep you awake a little bit. How long is a generation? Someone tell me. 20 years. Wasn't that long ago that it was 30 years. Do you know that you are vastly wrong? Demographic studies in generationalism, first of all, generations are not established by years. Years have nothing to do with it. It has to do with cataclysmic events that in a global way impact a group of people so that they have similar priorities and values and reflect that in decision making. That marks a generation. And do you know that currently they're estimating that generations, because of the spread of information, are going to change every two and a half years? So I tell our seniors, our incoming freshmen think they're old fuddy-duddies. You say, really? Yeah. They laugh at them because they still use Facebook. So the monster is growing. The monster is growing. The giant is growing. Goliath, if you will. And if we're not careful as David looking to make a difference for the Lord, we'll accept the king's armor as a substitute for how do we attack that? And friends, the answer is the Lord. So I want to give you hope today. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of 2 Peter. What I'm going to do today, I don't know why, but I'm going to do that thing that is the most difficult thing in preaching for a pastor when he preaches through a book. That is the first message. Once you get kind of through that introductory message, then you can get into the text and you tackle a pericope and then you're good. You're off you go and you can say, oh, I'm actually going to preach that first book. We're going to kind of look at all of 2 Peter. So you forgive me. But I want to do it because I want to do it in a way that gives us incredible hope. And I want to do it because this book is, is unique. It's, it's interesting. I did not realize before preparing for this, how attacked in modern literature 2 Peter is. 2 Peter is attacked much more than 1 Peter. It attacks the authorship because the language is a little different than 1 Peter. 
And I think after getting in and studying this book and looking at, at what, what Peter is doing, it has the flavor, if you will, of a testament because he mentions in chapter 1 and verse 14 that he's about to put off this tent, the, the, the body or tabernacle. And so there's a sense that he's writing with this, this urgency of a last message. And in doing so, he is actually going to, in that sense of urgency, leave them with a key thought that I think pervades this entire book. And it's there that I think for ministry to a generation like this and the hope that we will one day then leave a generation that knew God, this book then gives us great, great hope. This is our central text, and I'll build a pathway from there. I want you to look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to begin in verse 16. We have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this verse that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I think this is at the heart, if you will, of all that Peter is going to write and ultimately remind his readers of. He has a relationship with them. He's burdened for them. He understands some of the struggles and difficulties and temptations that they are facing. He writes about the prospect, if you will, by the time we get to the tragedy at the end of chapter two of some who will actually fall away. And he describes the latter end being worse with them than the beginning. For it would have been better, imagine, it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Can you imagine But Peter is writing as one who's experienced failure. He lost his faith when walking on the water. He fell asleep in Gethsemane when he should have prayed. He denied the Lord three times. Paul then later sharply rebukes him for his legalistic hypocrisy. This is a man by experience who knows the very temptation to fail that they are facing. And I think he doesn't write just to correct. I think he writes with great empathy. And he writes in an interesting way. I want you to see things that maybe as we come to a book, we kind of just, if we're reading it, blur through because it's just an introduction. But he says, Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss this because he's setting the stage of how he is writing and he identifies himself as a doulos. He's a slave. 
I'm going to write a message as a slave. I belong to somebody. There's something you need to understand. And then he describes himself as an apostle. And we, we load all kinds of stuff onto that. Oh, I knew who the, the apostles were. And their cousins, the epistles. See, you're awake. That's good. But here he actually uses the word as a messenger. He is a slave messenger. There's something that he is going to write about in, with an urgency of a dying man to people that they desperately need to hear. Because there's an unbelievable cost that will result in a tragedy that there could be people that it would have been better for them to have not even heard. So notice, if you will, what he does just by way of context. I'm going to bring you back before I bring you forward. I like King James here because it repeats the same word. I don't know that it necessarily is. In other translations in particular, you'll see there's a change in the words. But notice with me that he talks in verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle body, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor, verse 15, that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. And then he writes our text. But let's go the other direction. Look back with me, if you will, at verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Verse 10, wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things. Verse 9, but he that lacketh these things is blind. Verse 8, for if these things be in you and abound, they, are you curious yet? It's like, man, at what point is he going to tell me what these things are? Well, I want you to see a couple of things. First of all, I want you to see that as he begins this, he's actually going to identify a category of truth that he refers to as the knowledge of God. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through, verse 2, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then he begins the first, verse 3, of these things, but then he says that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, and then he's going to begin this maturation process of giving all diligence we're to add to our faith, virtue into virtue, knowledge. Then verse 8, in the midst of these things, he says that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then by the time he gets over to the tragedy, look at verse 20 of chapter 2. He says, for if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Somewhere in the midst of all of this, the, these things are the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that knowledge he's capturing here as a salvific knowledge. That results in a sanctifying knowledge. And so he's going to describe both initial conversion he's going to describe Sanctification or growth in that faith. But I want you to notice then something else that's a characteristic of this book that, that is so interesting to me, and you heard it even as I, I was rehearsing the, the knowledge passages, that there's something about this knowledge that, that is compelling Peter. 
he repeats this little phrase. I want to remind you. I'll be diligent to give you a reminder that after I am gone that you will remember. And he does it all the way to the end of chapter 3. And in the end of chapter 3 and verse 17, after talking about the scriptures, which by the way is where I'm going to lead us with regard to where we get this knowledge, he says, ye therefore, verse 17, beloved, seeing ye know these things before. You already know it, but, but there's a need to be reminded. And if you will, what he's going to do through these three chapters is say this, I want to give you a reminder to remember not to forget. I'm going to give you a reminder to remember not to forget these things, which look like the knowledge of God, which is sourced in the scriptures. Friends, I want to say simply by declaration that while he's going to talk here about them not following cunningly devised fables, he's going to talk about the errors and the distortion and destruction of the truth. He is actually calling to these people because they are facing a temptation to shift the source of authority for godly living to the novel, to the attractive. And in their generation, like our generation, it's what seems more palatable, or maybe what seems like the generation wants, or what the itching ears might be after. And I want to make this declaration that if we, even with Gen Z, and even with generations that due to technology may change every two and a half years, begin to shift to something other than the clear, authoritative declaration of God's word, we will never see a generation that knows God. They need God's truth. That's what he's reminding them of. So let's simply look then, if you will, even by way of survey at this book. And I want you to see, first of all, the danger. The danger. The danger here, I, I want you to get it, is he's giving them a reminder. He's calling them to remember. He's not challenging them over forgetfulness. That's not actually what he's talking about. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them. There's that from chapter 3 and verse 17. Though you know them and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Verse 15, moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. I want you to see here that he uses an accumulated future. And in doing so, he's making a statement. I will regard you as always needing to be reminded. He looks at them in their human condition. He looks at them in their brokenness. He looks at them and at us in our fallenness. And he looks at them and he says, because of your broken flesh, I will consider you always in, in need of being reminded. You never get over it. You need to be reminded by the word and by the spirit that you need the word. You need to be reminded by the word and by the spirit that the people around you need the word. You need to be reminded that it is a, a, an arduous task. 
Yet the best thing that you could ever do for those that God by his spirit brings to your congregation is to preach to them the word. Not stories. Not the latest technology. Oh, all assets if we can use them, friends. All assets if we can use them. But never a substitute. There was a danger. And that danger is not that we are forgetful. The danger is that we become negligent. That's why he uses the word diligent. You see, through negligence, we open the door for passivity, and passivity opens the door for compromise with error. Peter says, it's right for me to call you to remembrance so that I might stir you up. That little word, that little phrase is a call to action and awakening. The Greek word means to awaken or to rouse up, to move from passive to active, to move from unintentional to intentional. Listen to this in his expressions. Verse 5, giving all diligence. Verse 10, give diligence so you shall never fall. Second Peter there, and then chapter 3 and verse 14, he says, be diligent. Verse 17, to be where? There's this, there's this urgency in his pleading with them that actually is calling them to be aware that they, they need to be active, not passive. We just heard an incredible message on being dependent, desperate. Friends, as we need that desperation with regard to our praying, friends, we need that desperation with regard to the truth. How often do I come to my Bible and realize that this is God's means of grace for me, that this is the source of knowledge for me, that it's here that I will get these things, that it's by this that my faith will grow and be deepened as I add to it virtue and a virtue knowledge. You see, friends, I think so often those of us who are at best the most diligent, we do our daily Bible reading or we have our daily devotions, then we're inclined to be moralistic and say, there it is, I checked the box, I I did my Bible thing. Friends, it's not because you got in the Bible that makes the difference. It's only as you get the Bible in you. God's not looking for us to check every mark on our calendar and say, there it is, God, 365, and in a leap year, there's more than that. He actually wants to see how much of the truth is in me. Your word have I treasured up in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy law. God says to Joshua, facing the daunting task of leading a broken people into his promise, but this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. You see, it's so easy for us, even those of us who are familiar with the word, to become negligent. And if it's easy for the pulpit, friends, it's easier for the pew. There's a danger. That danger is, first of all, marked by ignorance of the truth, but it's not just that. Realize the environs we're in. There's a danger of the infiltration of the truth. Notice what he says in verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming. He's laying out there because there's an accusation. Others were doing that. The danger there is a dilution, if you will which may be our greatest danger. If I could just find a way maybe that I could make this a little more palatable with modern language and maybe I can integrate it a little bit with modern psychology because that's where the culture is right now. 
And if I can sound a little more like a therapist, it's the, it's the avant-garde thing to do. What'd you do this morning? I went to the gym, I got my latte, and I saw my therapist. That's what we do, right? Well, maybe if I could feel a little more like that and they don't have to pay as much, they'll come to church. And if we're not careful before long, we through integration dilute the word of God. Dilution then also can lead us to distortion. Jump over with me, if you will, to chapter 3 and verse 16. I love the self-claims of the Bible. Here's one of them. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Peter actually affirms that Paul has written graphe. I like that. But notice this word that he uses here. King James defines it, gives it to us as rest, means to twist, to make taut, when used of cables, and then in various senses of wrenching, as in uh, resetting dislocated limbs. But then, as it comes to be used linguistically, it actually means to distort a statement so that a false meaning results. These people that wrest the scripture, they're not wrestling with the scripture. It's not that they're saying, ooh, God, that's really hard and I want to wrestle with you. They're actually wresting the scripture. There's an intention to take what the Bible says and twist it in a way that a different meaning results. Friends, here's the thing in our age with this generation. They're all hearing scripture wresting all the time. I could give you name after name, litany after litany, but I only have to say things like Joel Osteen. And somehow now this is just a formulaic approach to get God over a barrel so that he has to give me my best life now. Oh, friends, listen, if the health and wealth gospel has any reasonable truth to it, then we shouldn't be reading Paul or Peter. They were utter failures. They neither had health nor wealth. Their God seemingly then wouldn't care for them. The reality is we face a people, we face a generation that are inundated with Scripture that has been diluted and distorted. And because of that, when it actually comes to the truth of the Word of God, I say to you, we are facing a pandemic of biblical illiteracy that's resulting in people knowing about God and not knowing God. And ultimately, I want you to see that Peter lays out a devastating prospect in this danger because the third thing is, look at chapter 2 and verse 2. Chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, And many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of whom, listen, the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. The truth can actually be destroyed. Delusion that leads to distortion and ultimately to destruction. And friends, much of I think what we see today called as church, when you go there and you wonder why it certainly feels like it should be Ichabod Baptist Church, is because when you get inside, there is word, but it's destroyed. 
if we fall prey to these temptations, we have no prospect of seeing a generation raised up that knew God. But, oh, friend, Peter's writing this because there is. There is. So I want you to see then, secondly, the desire. Go with me, if you will, to chapter 3 and verses 17 and 18. He says, you therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked fall from your own steadfastness. What a word. You realize what he's saying there? But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. First of all, he says, beware. It's not merely a parental injunction. It's not a caution like now. As you go out tonight, be careful. It's a call not just to attention, but a call to action. When you read this statement at the end of this book, you realize that Peter is calling his readers to engage their minds to sharpen their focus, if you will, to take off the blinders on the one hand and to put on their glasses on the other. He makes this stunning statement. I'm not writing to you because you don't know. I'm writing to you because you do. So Peter is rehearsing for them the fact that the danger is found in the fact that this is truth that they know so well that it may have become commonplace to them. There's a truth to the fact that familiarity breeds contempt. Friends, when our Bible becomes to us nothing more than a source of quick-witted cliches, it's not changing our lives. He says, beware. This is a somber call, a sobering call to stop and ask ourselves, How much do I value the word? Because if I want to see a generation rise up that knows God, it's going to start with us valuing the word. But then notice he changes and turns them to the active. He says, beware. But then notice what he says. But grow in grace. He says, the antidote for negligence is not simply realizing you're negligent. I love the little passage. Paul's talking about the tongue, and in the midst of the passage about the tongue, he stops and he talks about the thief. He says, let him that stole steal no more. Rather, let her labor with his hands that he may have to give to those who are in need. And so in the midst of this, and I think he uses it there in a powerful way, but also by application to the, the, the rest of what he's talking about when, with the tongue. So he asks this question, in a sense, when does a thief stop being a thief? When does a thief stop being a thief? The common answer would be when he stops stealing, and that's not Paul's answer. It is when he starts giving. There's a sense the negligent man doesn't stop being negligent because he recognizes that he's negligent. It's when he determines that he's going to start growing. 
See, someone with a hunger for growth, I'm going to grow in grace, is the one that then will rightly value the word of God. So he says, beware, but that's not enough. He says, be growing, grow in grace and grow in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I would espouse to you that in Peter's teaching, the two are not exclusive. They're inclusive. In other words, you cannot grow in one without growing in the other. The ability to grow in grace is sourced in a, deepening under, a deepened understanding of the person and work of Jesus. In order to be a grace-filled Christian, you must be a Christ-filled Christian and a word-filled Christian. It's Paul that said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. It's through knowledge of Christ that comes then the understanding of the word that enables me to grow in grace. Oh, we hear so much today about grace. Almost to a personification, and I love grace. But friends, understand grace did nothing of its own. Today in many of our conversations, grace is a God unto itself. And when we do that, we forget the God of all grace. If grace did it, God did it. Give God the glory, not grace. But if you want to grow in grace, it's not somehow figure out a human process by which you can become more gracious. It's actually grow in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he says back in chapter one. Add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge. And all of this is sourced in these things that result in us growing as a believer. And at the heart of it is this, a more sure, a more sure word of prophecy. And I want you to see this after all that I've said. Imagine, Stephen got up and he said, now as we close this conference, we've got a special surprise for you. It's taken us a while to figure it out, but we figured out a way, and Peter is going to close our conference. Peter is going to come, and what he's going to do for us is give us a personal story. About one day, he and two friends, having the incredible honor of being called out from the rest of them to go apart with Jesus, and on a mountain, with his own eyes, even in the midst of his failure, there he, he almost practiced false worship, because he was so broken, but he had the privilege of actually seeing our Lord transfigured if you will, humanly, as close to the glimpses of behind parts of the Shekinah as another human being has ever gotten. And there in the midst of that, he was able to hear the voice of the father saying, this one is my son. Now, you might not stay and hear me preach, but he announced that Peter was gonna come do that, you'd probably stay. All of that is true. And that eyewitness says this. That as I come to the end of my life, I have a passion. And that passion is to transfer your understanding of a process that shifts the source of authority from faith in men to faith in manuscripts. He's going to refer to Graffe twice then in this book. And there's a sense, a real sense in which this is more sure because God breathed it and it's written down. 
And he's going to drive home the message that we aren't to deprecate, we aren't to neglect, we aren't to become negligent about this more sure word. For it is more precious than Peter, an apostle, who saw with his own eye and could bear witness with his own mouth that Jesus was the Christ because he saw it and heard it. This is more sure. Do you treat it as such? But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through this more sure word. And then thirdly, as I close, he says a third thing, and I love this. Because I think this is what will drive our heart both to be growing and to beware. Look at the last verse. Peter says, but grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and and forever, amen. Any questions? There might be another generation that will know God now and forever. It's not going to fail. So he says this, be glorifying. This doxological focus and expression isn't merely some empty religious platitude because he needed a way to quickly wrap up the book. It's both a central focus and a crescendo. Peter is calling his readers to a life that is marked by the intentional focus of giving the right opinion of God in all that we do and in all that we say. If you want to live driven with a passion to be glorifying, it will cause you to beware in your negligence and it will cause you to be growing in grace and in knowledge. It is this doxological heartbeat that forms a passion if it gives us the why if you will. So a survey of the book. Now you can go home and you're going to just go pericope by pericope and actually deal with all the language. And I've done my best somehow to look at the grand themes that are repeated for us and the repeated words throughout this book. But I hope that it gives us a scent, if you will, of what it is and why it is Peter is writing. And I believe that he is not writing to discourage. I think he is actually writing to say no. There is the hope that there will be a generation that knows God because we have God's word. But I'm gonna remind you to remember not to forget that it's all you need. But you need all of it. So beware and be growing and be glorifying and allow God through that which he has empowered to transform hearts, change lives, build his church and raise up a generation that knows God. Friends, don't forget. Let's pray. God, how I thank you for your truth. We confess our weakness. We want to see our churches grow. We want to see our people grow. We face what feels for us like a, a daunting giant growing further and further away from the didactic process of preaching, more and more enamored because of access through media to novel preachers and 
entertaining preachers and better preachers. God, we confess in our foolishness at times we're frustrated. We feel in a real sense that what we do is folly and that we're failing. God, I pray we would hear the wise words of this wise now old slave apostle who gives us this message. Don't forget, God gave you his word. Sure, it's trustworthy. It's powerful. It's an antidote for the dilution and destruction that the false teachers would bring. And we didn't know, should you trust in cunningly devised fables? And thus we hear Paul's words saying, preach the word. God, we then will abandon ourselves to you in obedience to your great command for the sacred desk to declare your word And allow you through it to do your work. And then because of it, to rightly receive all the glory. For it's in Christ's name that we pray it.